0: Welcome to Strange Talk. Hey, strangers. Welcome to Strange Talk Podcast. Strange Dog Podcast is a weekly podcast dedicated to strange tales of true crime, paranormal, and conspiracy theories, and whatever the fuck else I feel like talking about. And every Wednesday is a weekly segment known as This Week in Crime. So if you're listening to, to Monday's episode, this very episode that you're listening to at the very moment, um, then on Wednesday, This Week in Crime, will, there will be another one. So... I don't know if you follow me on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast, but I happen to uh, say and give updates about what I usually am going to do for Monday's episode. So it's a weekly podcast, you know, for the new listeners here, um, and I was going to tell three stories, but my sister-in-law happened to bring light, uh, well, made me aware of this one really interesting story, so I'm including it in this episode, so that's why it's taken me a lot longer to get the episode out. But nonetheless, I have chit-chatted enough, and um, just want to let you... Just thank you for taking the time to spend a little bit of your day, your work week, if you're listening to it in your car, if you're cleaning your house, taking care of your children, just doing that thing, getting that grind down. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Strange Talk Podcast. Now, I have four interesting strange tales of murder um, and just weird just evilness. Um, And I'm going to start off with the first story because it's the shortest one of them all. And um, here it is. Let's get started. In the 1880s, an heir to the vast Jameson Irish whiskey fortune bought a 10 year old girl just so he could draw her be eaten by cannibals. Yes, you heard that right. James S. Jameson was the great great grandson of John Jameson, the founder of the famed Irish Whiskey Company, and as such was heir to the family fortune. Like many rich heirs of the era, Jameson considered himself something of an adventurer and would tag along on the expeditions of more accomplished explorers. In 1888, he joined the Emin Pasha Relief Expedition, led by renowned explorer Henry Morton Stanley, across Central Africa. The journey was ostensibly to bring supplies to Emin Pasha, the leader of an Ottoman province in Sudan that was cut off by a revolt. In reality, the expedition had a second purpose, to annex more land for the Belgian Free State Colony in the Congo. It was on the expedition that James Jameson would commit his unspeakable crime. Varying accounts exist of the incident from Jameson's diary, his wife, and a translator on the trip, but what they all agree on is that by June of 1888, Jameson was in command of the rear column of the expedition at Rubikakiba a trading post deep in the Congo known for its cannibal population they also say that Jameson were dealing directly with Tipu Tip a slave trader and a local fixer according to Assad Faran a Sudanese translator on the trip Jameson expressed interest in seeing cannibalism firsthand faran would later tell stanley when he returned to check up on the rear column his account of the events and would later recount them in an affidavit that was actually published by the New York Times. He said that Tipu then talked to the chiefs of the village and produced a 10-year-old slave girl who Jamins paid six handkerchiefs for. He paid six handkerchiefs, okay? So it wasn't money, he actually just gave them handkerchiefs. According to a translator, the chiefs then said to the village, they must have been really nice handkerchiefs then, to their villagers, this is a present from a white man who wishes to see her eaten. The girl was tied to a tree, said Ferran. The natives sharpened their knives the while. One of them stabbed her twice in the belly. In James Jameson's own diary, he then wrote, Three men then ran forward and began to cut up the body of the... Oh, actually, no, he'd be Irish, wouldn't he? Yeah, I'm not even going to do it. Three men then ran forward and began to cut up the body of the girl. Finally, her head was cut off and not a particle remained each man taking his piece away down the river to wash it. Both of them also agree on another account. The girl never screamed throughout the ordeal. The most extraordinary thing was that the girl never uttered a sound nor struggled until she fell, wrote Jameson. Jameson, in the meantime, made rough sketches of the horrible scenes recounted for Ron and his later testimony. Jameson afterward went to his tent, where he finished his sketches in watercolors. In his own diary, Jameson oddly doesn't even fully deny making these drawings, writing, When I went home, I tried to make some small sketches of the scene while still fresh in my memory. In his account, in his diary, and his wife's later account of the incident, the two attempted to play it off as though Jameson went along with the proceedings because he believed it to be a joke and could not imagine that the villagers would actually kill and eat a young child. However, this account fails to explain why Jameson would pay exactly six handkerchiefs, likely an amount he would have had to procure for something he didn't believe would have happened. It also fails to explain why he even attempted to sketch the horrifying event after the murder. Likely, the account of his crime is true, But James Jameson never faced justice. He died shortly after the accusations of his misconduct made their way to the Stanley in 1888 from a fever he had contracted while on the expedition. Jameson's family, with the help of the Belgian government, were able to hush up many of the atrocities this mission became the last of its kind. Non-scientific civilian expeditions into Africa were suspended after this time though military and governmental ones would continue. All because of the crimes of a whiskey heir and the brave interpreter who told the world what he did. Now, I did some digging afterwards, and I couldn't really find, per se, if James Jameson is actually part of the family of the Jameson Irish Whiskey. So I couldn't really actually find anything that could be factual that this man is the heir to that you know, family family whiskey business, whatever. But I did find out that actually through digging, I went on com, and they did say that a man by the name of James Jameson, well, there's evidence showing that that actually did occur. He did actually watch um, a little girl being eaten <laughs> by a cannibalistic tribe. And, but they do go on to say that though the accounts of his diary and everything They're not sure if he actually paid because he wanted to see it, but it just in his diary shows that he did admit seeing to it. And um, if you do some digging on Google, you can actually see the pictures of what he saw that that happened. Man, so that's just the first little snippet of the stories that I have for you today. Now let's move on to the next one. And the next one is the Lawson Family Massacre. On Christmas Day 1929, shots rang out across the countryside near Germantown, North Carolina, as Charlie Lawson murdered his wife and six of his children before taking his own life hours later. To this day, no one knows why he committed these terrible acts. Charlie Lawson had been married to Fanny Maring for 18 years, during which time they had eight children. Four sons and four daughters. Their third child, William, died in 1920, but the other seven children were still alive on the morning of December 25, 1929. By the evening, only 16 year old Arthur would remain in the living world. The Lawson family worked as sharecroppers and had finally saved enough to buy their own farm just two years before the tragic event. Not long before that faithful Christmas morning, the whole family went into town. To buy new clothes for a family portrait, which would prove to be the last photo taken of them alive. Since new clothes and portraits were unusual luxuries for working class families of the era, many have since seen this as proof of premeditation on Charles Larson's part, perhaps immortalizing his loved ones before destroying them. The bloody crime began on Christmas afternoon as the Lawsons' daughters, Carrie and Mabel, ages 12 and 7, were leaving to visit their aunt and uncle. Charlie Lawson lay in wait for them near the barn, and when they drew close enough, he shot them both with a shotgun. He then bludgeoned their bodies, presumably to ensure that they were dead. Afterward, Lawson hid the evidence of his crimes in the tobacco barn. From there, he walked back to the house and shot his wife, who was on the porch, before dragging down his other four children, and killing them one by one. He shot his 17-year-old daughter, Marie, first, then his two young sons, James, age four, and Raymond, age two, before beating to death his four-month-old baby, Mary Lou. Prior to going on his bloody spree, Charlie Lawson sent his oldest son, Arthur, into town on an errand. Though his motives for sparing the one child remains as mysterious as his motives for murdering his whole family. When his family was dead, Charlie Lawson carefully positioned their bodies, arms crossed, with rocks under their heads like pillows. After that, he disappeared into the nearby woods, where he stayed for several hours before shooting himself in the head. By the time Charlie Lawson committed suicide, the bodies of his family had already been found, and several neighbors who had gathered on his property heard the gunshot that ended his life. Charlie's body was found by a tree encircled with footprints. He had been carrying letters to his parents and appeared to have spent some time pacing around the tree before finally deciding to end his life as well. At the time, no one seemed to know why Charlie Lawson would suddenly kill his entire family and then himself. Some believe that a head injury he sustained months prior was the cause, though an autopsy revealed no evidence of brain damage. Rumors swirled that Lawson had actually committed the murders at all, that he actually hadn't committed the murders at all, that he was an unfortunate witness to some sort of organized crime, and he and his family were murdered by gangsters to keep them quiet. In later years, however, with the 1990 publication of the book White Christmas, Bloody Christmas by Judy J., Trudy J. Smith, a new theory as to the reason behind Charlie Lawson's killing spree surfaced. According to anonymous sources, as well as relatives and friends of the family, Charlie Lawson was suspected of having an incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter, Marie, who may have been pregnant with his child. In a 2000 book, the Meaning of Our Tears, the author provided more support for this theory, including a conversation with one of Marie's closest friend, who claimed that Marie had told her that Charlie had gotten her pregnant. There is, however, no official report that would support this supposed pregnancy. Arthur Lawson, the only remaining member of the family, grew up, was married, and had four children. But unfortunately, he was killed in a car accident in 1945 at the age of 32. It seems there's no escaping the death of that family. There is a small museum dedicated to the Lawson family located at the Madison Dry Goods Country Store in Madison, North Carolina. The museum sits on the original site of the funeral home where the eight members of the Lawson family who died that fateful Christmas were embalmed. To this day, Tourists and locals alike pop into Madison Dry Goods to view newspaper clippings and old photographs of the Lawson family affair. After all of these years, people are still fascinated with that terrible tragedy, says Richard Miller, owner of Madison Dry Goods. The eight Lawsons who perished that Christmas day, including Charlie, are interred together with lost baby William beneath a single headstone, which bears the melancholy (laughs) inscription, not now. But in the coming years, it will be in a better land. We'll read the meaning of our tears, and then sometime we'll understand them. So Charlie Lawson was just, nobody really knows why to this day he decided to just kill his family. And obviously there's those two main theories that you heard about. That maybe he witnessed a crime from an organized mob boss, maybe he was, uh, and his family was murdered as a result of it, or he was simply having an incestuous relationship with his daughter. And that's very disgusting. In 1961, a picture was snapped of a young girl who was discovered adrift, alone and on a small lifeboat in the waters of the Bahamas. The story of how she ended up there is much more horrifying and bizarre than one can imagine. When Nicholas Spigachdikis, second officer of the Greek freighter Captain Theo, saw Terry Joe Duperalt, he could hardly believe his eyes. He had been scanning the waters of the Northwest Providence Channel, a strait that divides two major islands of the Bahamas, and one of the thousands of tiny dancing whitecaps in the distance caught the officer's eye. Among the hundreds of other boats in the channel, he focused on that single dot and realized it was too large to be a piece of debris, far too small to be a boat that would travel that far out to sea. He alerted the captain who put the fire- freighter on a collision course for the speck. When they pulled up alongside it, they were shocked to discover a blonde-haired 11-year-old girl floating by herself in a small inflatable lifeboat. One of the crew members took a picture of her squinting into the sun looking up at the vessel that had saved her life. The image made the front page of Life magazine and was shared around the world. But how did this young American child find her way to the middle of the ocean all alone? The story begins when her father, a prominent optometrist from Green Bay named Dr. Arthur Duperault, chartered the luxury yacht, the Blue Bell, from Fort Lauderdale to the Bahamas for a family trip. He brought with his, with him his wife, Jean, and his kids, Brian, 14, Terry Joe, 11, and Renee, 7 years old. He also brought his friend and former Marine and World War II veteran, Julian Harvey, as his skipper along with Harvey's new wife, Mary Deneen. By all accounts, the trip was going swimmingly, and there was little friction between the two families throughout the first five days of the journey. On the fifth night of the cruise, however, Terry Jo was awoken by screaming and stomping on the deck above the cabin in which she slept. Talking to reporters later, Terry Jo recalled how she went upstairs to see what it was and I saw my mother and bro- brother lying on the floor, and there was blood all over them. She then saw Harvey walking towards her. When she asked what happened, he just slapped her in the face and told her to go down below deck. Terry Joe once more went above deck when the water levels began to rise on her level. She ran into Harvey again and asked him if the boat was sinking, to which he simply replied, yes. He then asked her if she had seen the dinghy that was moored to the yacht break loose. When she told him she had, he jumped into the waters towards the loose vessel. Left alone, Terry Joe remembered the single life raft aboard the vessel and embarked on the tiny boat out into the ocean. Without food, water, or any covering to protect her from the heat of the sun, Terry Joe spent eighty-four grueling hours before she was rescued. By the Captain Theo. Unbeknownst to Terry Joe, by the time she woke up on November twelfth, Harvey had already drowned his wife and stabbed the rest of Terry Joe's family to death. He likely killed his wife to collect on her twenty thousand double indemnity insurance policy. When Terry Joe's father witnessed him killing her, he must have killed the doctor and then proceeded to kill the rest of her family. He then sunk the yacht they were on and escaped on his dinghy with his wife's drowned corpse as evidence. His dinghy was found by the freighter, the Gulf Lion, and brought to a U.S. Coast Guard site. Harvey told the Coast Guard that the yacht had broken down while he was on the dinghy. He was still with them when he heard that Terry Joe had been discovered. Oh my god, Harvey reportedly stammered when he heard the news. Why, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, look at it. The next day, Harvey killed himself in his motel room, slitting his thigh, ankle, and throat with a double edged razor. Because he really wanted to go. <laughs> to this day, why Harvey decided to let the young Terry Joe Duperault live is unknown. Some at the time hypothesized that he had some kind of latent desire to be caught, as little else would explain why he would have no qualms killing the rest of the, her family but mysteriously left Terry Joe Duperalt alive. Whatever the case, the bizarre act of mercy, the case resulted in the media phenomenon of the sea wave that captured the nation. And that's the story of Terry Joe Duperolt. It's very sad. Known as the girl in the box. We're moving on to our next story. In 1977, 20-year-old Colleen Stan was hitchhiking from her hometown of Eugene, Oregon to Northern California. She considered herself an expert hitchhiker, and on that day in May, she had already turned down two rides. However, when a blue van pulled over in Red Bluff, California, Stan saw that it was being driven by a man who had his wife who had his wife in the passenger seat, and a baby in the back seat, deeming the young couple and their child a safe family. Stan accepted the ride. Sadly, she didn't know what she was in for. This family was anything but safe. The man was 23-year-old Cameron Hooker, and his wife was 19-year-old Janice Hooker. As it turned out, they had been actively looking for a hitchhiker to kidnap. Cameron, a lumber mill worker had intense bondage fantasies. Until they captured Stan, he had been using his wife Janice to fulfill those fantasies. Shortly after Stan got into the van, Cameron veered off the road and into a remote area. That's when he held a knife to her neck and forced her into a head box that weighed 20 pounds. The box which only confined her head blocked out sun and light around her and prevented the flow of fresh air. The car eventually drove to a house where Stan was led downstairs to a cellar and subjected to horrifying forms of torture. She was tied to the ceiling by her wrist and then beaten, electrocuted, whipped, and burned. Initially, the demented couple had an agreement that concluded Cameron wasn't allowed to engage in sexual activity with Stan. Instead, she was forced to watch the couple have sex after they would abuse her. Later on, this agreement would change, and Cameron started incorporating rape into his forms of torture. When the family moved into a mobile home, Colleen Stan was kept in a coffin-like wooden box underneath the hooker's bed for up to 23 hours a day. The couple had two young daughters who didn't realize Stan was being kept against her will and didn't even know that she was living in the house. For an hour or two a day, the girl in the box would clean and babysit the children. That was what Colleen Stan was referred to, the girl in the box. Anytime I was taken out of the box, I never knew what to expect. Fear of the unknown was always with me as I was kept in the dark both physically and mentally, said Stan. Although she was subjected to regular beatings and rape, Stan didn't consider her torture to be the worst aspect of her confinement. What terrified her even more was Carmen's claim that he was a member of a satanic organization called The Company. She was told that The Company was a powerful organization who watched over her and had her family's home bugged. More than anything, Stan feared an escape attempt would cause The Company to harm her family. So the girl in the box remained in captivity and even signed a contract stating that she was their slave. By complying with Cameron and his wishes, Stan continuously earned more and more freedom. She was allowed to work in the garden and actually go for jogs every once in a while. She was even allowed to visit her family. Cameron accompanied her, and she said he was her boyfriend. Her family took a happy-looking photo of the pair, but her lack of communication and money made them believe she was in a cult. However, They didn't want to pressure her as they were scared it would cause her to disappear for good. Stan's fear of the company stopped her from escaping or revealing any information to her family. Colleen Stan was kept captive for seven years from 1977 to 1984. Towards the end of that seven-year span, Cameron stated that he wanted Stan as a second wife. This didn't bode well for Janice Hooker. Janice had confessed that Cameron tortured and brainwashed her since they first started dating each other and that she had developed denial techniques and mentalized that aspect of her life. After this turning point, Janice revealed to Stan that Cameron was not part of the company and helped her to escape. In the beginning, Janice asked Stan not to say anything, convinced that her husband could be rehabilitated. When she realized he was unsavable, Janice reported her husband to the police. Cameron Hooker was charged with sexual assault and kidnapping using a knife. At the trial, Janice testified against him for full immunity. Colleen Stan's experience was described as unparalleled in FBI history. Cameron Hooker was found guilty and given consecutive terms, totaling a 104 year sentence. In 2015, he was denied parole. It will be a minimum of 15 more years before he's eligible for parole again. Colleen Stan suffered chronic back and shoulder pain as a result of her confinement. When she returned home, she received extensive therapy, eventually marrying and having a daughter of her own. She's joined an organization committed to helping abused women and even earned a degree in accounting. Colleen Stan and Janice Hooker both changed their names and continue to reside in California. However, they do not communicate with one another. In regards to her resilience during those excruciating years in captivity, Stan told reporters, I learned I could go anywhere in my mind. In a similar vein to Janice's carpet Stan said, You just remove yourself from the real situation going on and you just go somewhere else. That's going to do it for all of this episode. Unfortunately, it's a short one. I'm sorry. Um, But thank you for joining me nonetheless uh, for Strange Talk Podcast. Strange Talk Podcast is a weekly podcast dedicated to the strange paranormal conspiracies and true crime. Um, and this Wednesday is going to be another this week in crime. And this week in crime is a segment where I bring you interesting, weird, or strange or fucked up news articles from around the world, or right here in good old America. And if you haven't, why not subscribe to Strange Talk Podcast? If you're subscribing to me via iTunes, Apple Podcasts, which is the same thing, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, wherever you get your podcast from, go ahead and subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to follow me on social media on instagram at strange talk podcast send me stuff there um send me news articles that you find funny weird interesting news articles send me stuff and you know yeah <laughs> if you also want to send me stuff via email because you still use email go ahead and do so at strange talk podcast at outlook.com i will also more than welcome more than glad to take any articles you have for me there uh, again so uh, thank you to everybody who, I don't know if you saw, but if you do follow me on Instagram, you saw that uh, a good friend of mine, um, she's suffering a heavy, devastating loss, uh, her boyfriend, whose name is Albert Madrid, uh, perished in a fire while saving two little girls, but because of his heroic actions, two little girls were actually able to, um, you know, live their life, and he was only 25 years old, so I can't imagine the just how what what she's going through i can't begin to imagine but um thank you to anybody who may have uh, donated to that Uh, he deserves a proper burial and also so uh, stay tuned for next monday's episode and don't forget to check out this week in crime so you can hear um what i will be doing for monday's episode so as always stay strange